Hello, listeners. Today you will hear, I am very excited. Today we are talking to a bladesmith, and some of you will know from bits I've said in other episodes, I collect handmade knives, so I'm very excited. But beyond that, our guest also runs a bladesmithing school where they teach all sorts of other skills. From what I saw on the website, they were teaching a course on how to make longbows, a course on how to make leather goods, and linking to my other interest, he's also been running some knife-making courses for defence veterans as they recover from their experiences in defence. So people who have been forged to be the military personnel they were by defence are learning to forge pieces of steel. So I hope you find today as exciting as I do. Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's very exciting episode of Blind Insights. With me, of course, as usual, in the strange position of not talking first, is Tim Whiffen. I'm sitting on uh, the knife's edge of my seat, uh, excited. For that sounds bad, dude. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I don't thought know if anyone wants to be on the knife's edge of their seat. It was going to be a, a good pun, but then it ended up just being really dangerous, so... <laughs> yeah, we can always talk about apocalypse now and crawling along the straight edge of a straight razor, but that's even weirder. <laughs> we right, need a uh, flight of the Valkyries in the background now. All right, 40 seconds in, we're already on to apocalypse now. I think we'll <laughs> now be sensible and say hello to our guest. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to Karim Haddad. Welcome to Blind Insights. Hi, guys. Welcome to our show, and I hope that my excitement, enthusiasm, whatever else, uh, is not too weird. No, it's infectious. It'll be fine. That's good. I guess logical place to start because in Australia, not many people are bladesmiths or know a bladesmith or even know what it means to be a bladesmith. Would you like to talk a little bit about your journey to becoming a bladesmith? Sure. Knife making is something that I sort of fell into by accident. Um, most people really like knives or have a thing about them. Um, and then you know, they go on and, and do a little bit more and research it and try and work out how to become a knife maker. I was a little different in that I was working in Western Australia when I was at Outward Bound and the property owner there was a knife maker. And when we weren't running outdoor programs for young people, at the end of the course, we'd go down and have dinner at their place and he would bring out these amazing knives that he had made. And um, after years of begging him to show me, eventually took me under his wing and showed me a few things and I made my first knife. That was about 25 years ago. Who was uh, that? Because I remember some great knife makers from Western Australia would occasionally come over to the Adelaide Knife Show in the 90s. That's right. I wonder if I might have held some of his pieces you without even realising. You would have. Thomas Gurner is his name. Oh, I, I don't think I ever met him, but I definitely felt some of his knives. Yes. And uh, he was um, Australia's first master bladesmith. So he became that in the 90s which wow. is a fantastic achievement. We only have two master bladesmiths in the country and he's one of them. And the other's a fellow by the name of Sean McIntyre in Melbourne. Yeah, so I have yeah, a Sean McIntyre schedule copy, which is just amazing. Sean makes some beautiful knives as well. Yeah, so I was very fortunate to um, have Thomas as a, a mentor and a coach while I was working in Western Australia. Then I came back over east and kept pottering along with it. You know, 25 years later, I'm still struggling to make a good knife, I think. Yeah, but that's what everyone says to me, whether they're at the beginning or 
you know, 30 years into their career that because you always want to refine it just that little bit. And it's like anything in the world, the better you get, the more work it takes to get that next tiny refinement. Exactly right. And because it's such an analog pursuit, you can't, it can never be perfect. You can get close, but there's always something that's just not right that next time you'll have a better go at. Yeah. And it can be the dumb luck of a piece of material. So Ryan Simon in Adelaide just made a Damascus Bowie for me and he put three handles on it before he was happy with the final ebony handle, you know, with a, a copper butt cap that he put on it. It just wasn't right. So he kept doing it until it was right. Yeah. And that, that um, level of continual improvement um, is a real addictive part of it, but that, that um, just keep, oh, well, they talk about a, a skilled maker is one that doesn't, it's you don't not make mistakes you're just very good at hiding them yeah and that's what so many people have told me because it's really interesting when i go to knife shows and feel things and go wow the symmetry on this is amazing and there'll always be someone who goes i'm so proud of the grinding on this knife and then i'll run my fingers over it and go "Mm, yeah but your bevels aren't even (laughs) because my sense of touch i'm looking i'm feeling both sides at the same time that's so you know, visually, I, I can't be you know snuck up on or no, that's not totally smooth or flat. It actually is leaning that direction. I, I try not to be a, a dick about it with people. I try and be supportive of their enthusiasm. You try and hide your superpowers. Well, it's not a superpower. Again, the same way. Well, actually, I suppose the one superpower I have got is from all the years of being interested in knife. For me, texture is very important. So the number of knife makers I've said, yeah, like I like a lot of what you're doing, but every surface on it is too smooth. Yeah. There's no texture anywhere. So in the case of the Bowie Ryan just made me, he etched the Damascus very deep on the blade, on the guard. He worked the copper on the butt cap with a small peen hammer until it's got these amazing texture all over it, like a golf ball, and then discovered that copper will work harden and that hitting it for that long really wasn't any fun. No, you have to keep heating it up. Oh, I'll tell him that. (laughs) That might cause even more problems. So... When did you start heating and beating rather than stock removal straight away because you were exposed to a, a master smith? Or did you start with stock removal and then start heating and beating? Or I was lucky I started forging when I um, began. Um, in those days, there was a big division in the knife making world between those that would hammer the blade to shape and those that would grind the blade to shape. Even though the guys that hammered it would grind it as well, you know, there was a quite a big division. And when I first learned, you know, Thomas was one of about six people in the country that was doing all of the processes himself, forging it to shape, grinding it, the heat treatment of the blade, the handle, the leather sheath, the whole lot. And so I didn't know any better. I just did what he did, yeah, um, yeah. which was all that part, which was quite unusual in those days. Nowadays, it's far more common that people do different things. And a really good knife can be made both ways. It doesn't have to be just one or the other. And hopefully no, I, a lot of I remember the, the phase where it was very competitive between the two groups and they would almost sneer at each other. Like yeah. the forging people would look at the stock removal people and go, well, you just grind. It's like, well, if you both end up with an amazing thing, I, yeah. I don't really care as the guy buying it. I like the fact that often stock removals, you know, a bit cheaper, but you know, that's not going to be the final straw. The final straw is going to be how amazing a thing have you made. Yeah, there's look lots of ways to get to the end. And I find now, after making so long, I'll use whatever technique I can do to get the 
result rather than saying oh, i must forge it or i must grind it or i must do this or it you know the more flexible you are the the better your result can be so on the website for thawa valley forge you're forging in the act or in canberra in the act we're just off the bottom of canberra Okay. Again, I'm not familiar enough with the directions, even though I go there for work, I'm always in the city. So anything outside the city is a bit of a mystery. You know, the fact that you'll have courses to make, you know, folding knives and all sorts of different things. Have you pretty much now had a go at making almost everything with a sharp edge you can conceive of or still learning? No, not at all. I barely scratched the surface. There's a lot of different things that you can make. I mean, that's one of the beauties. I don't think I'll ever get to the end where, you know, I've made everything that I want. So what's your current thing that gets you super excited to you know, work out to the workshop and make? I had a hand injury a couple of years ago and I damaged my left hand. So the nerve doesn't work. So I can't hold anything in my left hand. So making anything at the moment is uh, pretty exciting. Um, mm-hmm. rather than Just fun to be making. Yeah, look, it is. And just um, trying to reteach my hand to well, it doesn't hold things, but to be in the right spot and to be able to do it. It's funny. People go, oh, you left or right-handed. And I say, look, I'm right-handed, but there are very few things except writing. I actually only do with one hand, everything else yeah. you do with two. And you don't realize what you've lost until you haven't got it anymore. So it's, yeah. it's, a, it's an interesting process I'm going through and just trying to see if I can make stuff. One of the things I've really noticed, and, and it's made it very hard to teach for me, is that I can't correct students' mistakes. So we have a bunch of really talented teachers here and one of their biggest skills is to fix a student's mistake without it looking like a big deal. So if someone, a novice hammers in the wrong spot or grinds a bit too much off, you want to be able to fix it very quickly and effortlessly so they don't feel bad about it. They don't feel like I failed, that it's all the end of the world. When you learn by yourself, that's how you feel. (laughs) I've completely destroyed it. I'll throw it across the room. I'll start again. And you're the only one in the workshop at the time when that happens. So it's no big deal. But the minute people start feeling self-conscious when they're, so when you opened Thawa Valley Forge, it was in the period where you were just making knives as sort of, was it your primary income by then? Or was just something on the side? It it was something on the side. Okay. And it was, you know, people would come up to me and they would see these knives and they say, can you show me how to do that? And when I bought uh, the place where we started the forge, the whole idea was, this place would be where we'd set it up. It had separate workshops. Our house was in the middle of it, but it had sort of enough spaces to do this. And so the idea was always to set up a school and to teach it. I just got a little bit carried away. (laughs) (laughs) We started 17 years ago and it was just me. And I think for the first maybe 10 years, we only ran maybe 10 classes a a year. You know, nowadays we have 14 full-time staff we run probably 280 classes a year. So it can be up to 30 classes a month. Yeah. Uh, looking at the website, you are very busy and teaching all sorts of amazing, you know, artisan skills, like I yeah. said, bow making, leather work. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about, because the property you're on is quite historical, isn't it? Yeah, we've got two properties. So about three years ago, we'd run out of space here when we were running about 130 classes a year. So we bought a place two doors down, Kappa Cumblo, and it's an old property. It was settled oh, probably in the 1830s on this side of the river. It was the first one in the area on this side. And it's through different owners. It's, it got up to about 90,000 acres at one point. 
Wow. And then got cut down. It was bought back by the government in the 70s and turned into an art and craft centre. That ran for about 30 years before the person before us had to stop running it because of various different things. Uh, and it was closed for about 10 years for that. And so when we bought it, the idea was that it would provide us with some more workshop space, but also accommodation. We have probably 40% of our participants, not right now because of the COVID restrictions, but normally about 40% come from interstate or overseas. And we're about 20 minutes from the nearest hotel. And it was inconvenient for a lot of people to stay in town and then come out each day or that kind of thing. So it was much easier. So we bought this place, which has accommodation there. It's also got a big homestead. And we run some big making events there now, which is very exciting. But we hope to get back to them when, when the restrictions go. Oh, I so, really want to get back there for work. I know I'm going to spend my whole weekend to the point where you're going to make me go home to the hotel. That's all right. <laughs> I suppose you're used to it because people, yeah, so many people like me have been so interested in you know, making knives, making sheaths and being blind. I can't even start. You know, I've often said to people that if they could microchip my balls tomorrow and give me enough, so it'd be the first thing I want to learn. Like I don't care how to drive a car. That's just, that's just a skill, but to be able to do something that would start a process of physically making things and then thinking about design. So how did you end up teaching all the other things as well? Like to have a bow making course on is a rather specific skill. Look, yes, it is but I don't have it. So somebody else came along and said, hey, I'd like to teach bow making classes. And I said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So, so really I, it's a case that people find you who've got that next skill and you're really growing a community of artisans around Thawa Valley Forge. Yeah, the idea is to try and not be, I mean, it's impossible for one person to have all yeah, those I skills. figured it would be. What's possible is that we can build a space where people can be creative, where people can come and do these things in a well-set-up workshop. And if we get the right teachers, then away we go. Yeah, I saw that Alistair Phillips, who's probably the, well, he's probably become very famous at the moment in the knife world for designing a knife and making a knife as a custom knife that Spyderco have now made their version of the Kapara. That, you know, he'd run a, a making folders workshop there a few years ago. Yeah, he was one of the, the first external teachers we had, I'd say probably 12 years ago. I met Alistair, he did a course with me. And he finished a knife that he had started 14 years earlier. He was learning from someone else yep. and he got all excited. And uh, he was in the first year or two of us running classes. I think it was in the first year. It might've been in, even in like the first three or four courses. Wow. Uh, and he got all excited and decided that he wanted to um, get into folders. And then after a few years, I thought, well, this is, um, you know, I saw his excellent work and said, can we teach other people how to do it? Because it's a bit of a dark art. Oh yeah. Folder yeah, making. He's been teaching for more than a dozen years. That's amazing. Yeah. I've got a few folders made by Alistair Bastian from Mount Gambier and they're oh, some yeah. of the first that Alistair made. And I'm going, hang on, this is number three. I think I've got number three, number 13 and number 34. Yeah. Well. And number three is amazing. Number 34 is like, wow and the things he's making now with the inlays and the precious materials are just well again you can tell he used to be a jeweler just the crazy place he's at in the ability to make a beautiful functional tool and a piece of art and both things are just at 110 percent simultaneously you know it's kind of crazy oh look the, the amount of things you can do it's generally when people start their hands are the limiting factor 
you know, you you don't have enough hand skills to catch up with your imagination. Yeah. And then depending on which way you go in, in your career, sometimes your hands cap catch up to your imagination. Sometimes you stop changing and innovating, but other times you can still go and have weird and wacky ideas and away they go. And Alistair Bastian certainly, um, one of those very talented people. Yeah, I've got a, a Damascus fixed blade from him where he cut the billet on a strange angle. So it actually looks like the billet has been dovetail jointed. Oh, yeah. It's just the craziest pattern. And, you know, he hadn't met me yet, but for some reason he decided to etch it really deep. So all along the spine, I can feel this crazy pattern. Now, something just incredibly artistic to do. I'm like, okay, in all the years I've been interested in this, I've never felt anything like this. And he'd bought this piece of horn back from overseas with him and sat and looked at it for months going, well, it's only that long, which means I've got to work out what knife's going to fit the handle because it's only that length. And then came up with the idea of both doing the strange thing with the billet, you know, and getting the proportions perfect to suit this piece of, I guess it's some sort of you know, native sheep horn or, or mountain sheep horn. So it all ends up just looking like it was the most, it has to be this way. It's the only way it could be. And yet, yeah, the creativity caught up with the materials in a sense. Yeah. I mean, it, knife making is a very, or, or knives are a very kinesthetic thing. There, there's yeah. a feel to them. Uh, most people pick it up and go, oh, that's got nice balance because somebody else told them to say that. But yeah. it's, it's not really about balance. It's about a physicality that you're not expecting. If you pick up a knife and it's heavier or lighter than what you think, you'll stop and, and be surprised. And then like you're talking about the different textures, mm. um, the shapes, the way it, it moves or opens and closes. Mm. It's a very physical thing. Uh, and I think that's what is part of the appeal to it. It's not just something you look at. It's different when you pick it up. Yeah. And the fact too, that so many people can go, I'm going to make a Bowie knife. I'm going to make a slip joint folder. I'm going to make a lock back they can essentially say they're building the same thing and yet 99% of it will be different to each other's project. And that's just, I think what I like so much is that so much in these very functional tools that at the end of the day are the original tool that allowed us as a species to reshape the world. You yeah. know, the minute we had sharp edges, we made everything else. So it's an incredible thing. This is the original tool. And yet in itself, the original tool then became the piece of art as well as being a tool creating this amazing circle of practical skill anesthetics and design and just people pouring their imagination into what they build yeah it, it allowed us to cook yeah it, it changed our diet it changed our brains because of it so you yep. can you, you know when we first I, I think the original tool was a rock that was a hammer and they threw it and it broke and it, they found the sharp edge that came off it yeah it was pretty quick afterwards that those two together allowed us to build what we call our civilization, you know, or all of the things that are created from that. We are, as humans, we're defined as being able to use tools. Yeah, with a tool-making ape, I think is the classic comment from Tim Taylor, an anthropologist, who's made the point that with every tool, our brain changed because the tool gave us more choices and who could see the benefits was most successful. So absolutely amazing that one of the most fundamental tools and listeners, for those of you that never even knew such things as knife shows exist, it can be an amazing thing to go to a knife show and at 9am you've got a few hundred people lined up because they are so excited to see what everyone has made for this year's show. And the buzz is just remarkable. So it's like any other bunch of enthusiasts, the sheer excitement is immense, but a big part of this, particularly from my perspective is 
you know, now some makers I've literally known for nearly 30 years, you know, since I bought my first Chris Reeve as an 18 year old and just going, wow, what they make is still changing and little details just get more and more refined and how they do things keeps evolving. Obviously having a student like Alistair and seeing his process must be amazing to see that with a little bit of knowledge, his imagination, his hands just took off and kept up with each other. Is that very common to have someone who can put the two together and then the bug bites and that's it, they're a knife maker for life? Maybe 1% of students? Depends. Yeah, probably. Um, I think for a lot of people, it unlocks something in their head. It's a confidence thing. And it and suddenly it becomes possible, whatever that you're making. We don't aim to run the classes to turn everyone into knife makers or blacksmiths or bowyers or whatever it is. We, The main aim around the class is, is to help people understand that they can do these things. We have forgotten how to do things with our hands. We do have very important lives now, but they're all virtual and we don't create. So we're stepping away from that tool creating animal that defines who we are. I think there's something when you actually create something that releases endorphins in your head, there's a buzz that comes from that. And I think they've done studies where people even watching tool shows or watching people make, make tools gives you that same feedback or that same buzz Mm. yeah Um, yeah well like there's a whole section of youtube just about people making crazy axes and and all kinds of things that are just popular kind of beyond belief you 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 kind of imagine i mean the way that we've described it so far it kind of seems like in terms of creativity it levels the playing field in, in the sense that there is so much kind of unquantifiable quality that goes into these things. You, you, you kind of, uh, we talked almost a little bit about ergonomics. We've kind of talked a little bit about balance and, and how I, some of those things don't even really capture the essence of what a quality knife is. And we can't really kind of measure these things in a scientific way, which is so interesting because it is, you know, some of the first tools. How has the technology, I guess, changed in the 21st century compared to, you know, I guess what, like a, a blacksmith was, you know, for, I guess, millennia prior? Uh, look, not, not a huge amount. There's some of the machines make it faster. Mm. But I would imagine if you teleported a blacksmith from the 15th century uh, or a knife maker from the 15th century into my workshop, he'd have trouble with the light switch. But after he worked <laughs> that thing out, he would, um, I think he'd be pretty quick on making it. I mean, th- these guys forever have been making tools. That's their job. Yeah. And so, you know, whether it's, a computer controlling it or something else, it's, it's still the same. I, you know, you're going from an idea through all the neurons, through your hands, maybe to press a button to switch a machine on to do something, to pop something out the other end. There's a lot of debate at the moment in the knife making world about whether they should use CNC machines or the argument about what's a handmade knife or a bench made knife or a custom knife. And they're interesting debates. And some people you know, come with a very fixed view that, no, no, we have to only do it this way. I said, well, you know, the grinder that you're using didn't exist 40 years ago. (laughs) So why is that okay and not something else? I think what's interesting is that, you know, a lot of the debate is steering towards authorship now. And if you are the sole author or you are the person that programs the machines or drives the things or does whatever it is, but you're the one that creates it, then you can say, you know, that's yours. You, you have produced that rather than 
someone who outsources it and gets it laser cut by someone and ground by somebody else and powder coated by somebody else. And then they just screw the handle on and they say, well, look, here's my knife. I said, well, it's not really your work. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing. I don't, there's no real easy answer to, you know, what is handmade, what is bench made, what is custom made, what are those things? Now, listeners, to give you a context on this, I got a folding knife a little while ago where the original version, the Buster, was $1,800 American, and I think there were only 18 of them. And yet the guy who designed this titanium folder had done all his own coding for the CNC. So when he had a batch of 300 made in conjunction with a major knife company, We Knives, it was all his coding. So this idea that Karim is talking about of authorship, even though it was made somewhere else by other people so that they could make more of them than he could make in his little workshop and bring the price down. So someone like me, I'm never going to spend the $1,800 to have one of his frame locks from his own workshop, but I wanted to have something designed by him exactly because of this authorship idea. You know, I don't know whose hands went on it or even whether many hands went on it at all. The majority of the work was probably done with incredibly advanced CNC. And yet that doesn't diminish to me that someone was able to do that design and then another organization were able to execute his design to a standard where he said, I'm still willing to put my name on this when he is renowned for a level of detail just off the scale. How do you feel about it, Karim? Are you sort of, as long as the authorship is clear, you really don't mind how they did it? Or have you got more of a, you want to see hands on tools? Yeah, see, I, look, I'm the opposite. I'm not a knife collector. I'm a knife maker. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very, very difficult profession to earn money in. You know, if you look around the country, there's, there wouldn't be more than 30 full-time makers, 30 people earning a full-time living from this. And most of them would have some other kind of income that would help. On the side, yeah. Yeah. And we employ, you know, there's probably eight of our staff are full-time makers. And they're, they're one of a very, like, there'd only be a couple of others in the country that are paid to yeah. make knives for a living. And for us, it's, you know, when we're making just the production knives or the custom knives, the return is really low. We're barely covering the salaries. Where we where we can survive is by teaching. So yeah, look it, for me. I, I look at this authorship. To me, a lot of the arguments about it, uh, whether people are deceiving others about who made this or how it was made or what happens. If you are upfront with your customer and say, "This was made in my shop by these staff. They were paid to do this. They use these machines." The customer can decide yeah. whether they want to buy that or not. But if I go with my handle strapped up and say, oh, yes, I made all of these, which when I clearly haven't, I've paid other people to make them for me, mm. um, I'm deceiving the customer. And the, the customer is not buying a Kareem Haddad knife. Mm. He, he's buying a Thawa Valley Forge knife made by people at the Thawa Valley Forge, but he's not buying one made by me. Um, so I don't claim that this is I've made this knife and away it goes unless I've made this knife. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the important thing, that honesty in advertising or that connection with the customer in the process. A lot of yeah. people flinch when you tell them how much a, a handmade knife costs. They fall over and then you have a discussion with him and say, well, how much do you earn an hour? They go, oh, yeah. you know, 40 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, doing whatever important job they have, that's fine. You know, and a lot of these knives here, so you've got a $300 knife, how many hours do you think that took? 10 hours, 20 hours to make. Uh, and then you take the materials, the 
workshop, the electricity, all of those things on top, you know, about a third of the cost is just in the consumables, sandpaper. And then people go, oh. And when they sort of do the math backwards and they work out that this custom knife, the, the person who made it's getting 10 bucks an hour, yeah. they feel a bit embarrassed. I remember when I got my first Burt Foster uh, forged 52,100 uh, drop point. And, it, you know, I think this was about 2005. And at that point, but it was $100 American an inch for the blade. That's how he worked his price. Yep. Because with everything else that went in, if he did roughly that, he could keep doing this. And it just kept, you know, the lights on and the bills paid. Yeah. And but you're like, eek. If <laughs> okay. it was really lucrative, then everybody would do it because it looks yeah. cool. But it's, it's funny, you know, people think it's a very glamorous profession they they see the forged in fire on telly where the guys are yeah hammers and sparks are going everywhere that's a small part of it a lot of it's just hard work and polishing and getting scratches out and it's dirty work and it's you know it's bad on your back on your neck on your hands so you always got cuts yeah. um, but people do it because there's a real sense of satisfaction in what they what they produce i have done all of this myself i've started with the raw materials a piece of steel, a block of wood, a piece of horn, and I put it together into something that's going to last a hundred years. You know, something that is beautiful to hold, something that works. And I've done all of this myself. That that's why we do it, not yeah. because we get rich from it. Very no. few people can charge, you know, a hundred dollars an inch or whatever it is, or or yeah. thousands of dollars for their beautiful stuff. And you know, they're very talented people. Yeah. Well, I think again, when I got my first one from Bert, he'd just become a master smith. And it was like, well, I wanted one thing at that level. So like, well, okay, got to get one to know what you get, you know, at this price point and quality level. It was like, okay, now I get it. Yeah. And then I think I ended up with six more over the next three years. Well, look, as a master smith, you're automatically at about a thousand US dollars onto any knife you make. Yeah. Um, simply because of all the time you've put in to get there. Of course. Yeah. And you know that we have 120 masters in the world. There are two in Australia. Okay, that was going to be my question a bit later on. Is I've got no idea how master smiths there even are. I know, you know, Sean's still one in Melbourne, like two in Australia, like you said, but I didn't know it was 120 all up. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, some years more die than get made. So wow. it's, it's not. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. And this year, none are getting made. You yeah, know, because the clothes. Nothing's are, been on. Yeah. No testing. Wow. So what have you got for sale on the Thawa Valley Forge website at the moment if listeners want? to look at handmade knives, what's up at the moment for people? Almost like nothing. That. Almost nothing? <laughs> Bugger. And here I was thinking of being supportive and giving you a chance to show product. No, no, that's fine. But look, at the moment, we're just getting smashed. Um, everything we put up doesn't last very long and goes. Fantastic. The guys, uh, look, at the moment, we've got a very heavy class schedule and we've spent a lot of time over the shutdown. We'd spent a lot of time investing in fixing up the workshops and getting them to the next level. Yeah. Um, you know, a huge amount of effort into machines and spaces and teaching aids and that kind of thing. We do some production work where we, um, we make for other people who put their brand on it. Okay. Uh, and that's keeping most of our non teaching time busy. Um, hopefully we're going to get a break in the next month or so where we can do more custom work. We also get, you know, custom requests. So people want, uh, you know, a knife for a wedding or a knife for yep. a 50th anniversary. So we do those. And then, if there's any time left after all of that, we think, oh, well, let's make some for our shop. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the last thing on the list. Yeah. You know, I'd love to sit down and make some beautiful 
you know, creative bits that we would like to make rather than yeah. you know, what somebody else wants or, you know, the, uh, the production stuff, which is good for developing hand skills, but not for creativity. Yeah. It's good to repeat, to go hands are getting better and better. Hands can keep up with eyes. Hands can keep up with brain, but at a certain point people start getting bored. I imagine. Well, that's right. We, we've just taken on an extra four staff to meet with the demand and none of them were knife makers beforehand. So you have to take them from zero to knife maker within three or four months, which is yep. pretty hard. That's a steep learning curve. Yeah. So it's a big bucket of knives and say, let's start grinding. <laughs> we go. Oh, that just sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I easily get excited. The, the yeah. 50th or 60th one starts to, but by then, you know, you're doing it automatically. You, you're able to pick something up, step up to a belt that's going 3,000 feet a minute and just make a huge shower of sparks and things happen very quickly without you thinking. Yeah, and that's, without fear because you know what's going to happen. You know the sparks are going to fly. You know roughly how hard it's going to bite at the thing. You know how much it's going to try and pull it out of your hand. All those kind of things are starting to become a bit familiar. That's right. So how did you end up running courses for defense veterans was this just some defense veterans came in and you know said to people this was amazing this really was a great thing for me to do after my military service it was a deliberate thing that someone organized or happened by accident or both both typical way the world works bit of chaos and a good thing came out of it yeah look we've been running quite a lot of classes that people were turning up to that were ex-service people and one of the things that we do in the class, we don't often say, we don't get people that start saying, hey, I'm a, I work in the military or I work in an office or I do this. We just take people as Dave, Tim, mm. Grimm and mm. say, right, well, let's just make stuff. And mm. you can be anonymous there. You can be, and people uh, over the course of the weekend start talking, get to know each other in a different light mm. rather than, oh, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a vegetable grower or something like that, which is completely mm-hmm. different. So not always do we realise what effect we're having on people until afterwards. And for me, it's always been about how you feel rather than getting the skills. Yeah, I, I know from my personal experience, it's a very cathartic thing to create something that's lasting, that's beautiful, that you can affect your environment. And, it, and people can feel like they are more powerful than they would normally feel in their life because you, you've mastered these things to create something. Um, so we, we noticed that, you know, quite a few veterans had come and done a program. We had one particular one, Mark, who now works here and he was given a course by his wife for his birthday present and something clicked in his head with it. And he said, this is fantastic. I want to come and work here. And he pestered me and then came and volunteered for a while. And then we employed him. He now works full time here. And he was the one that really drove us to proactively go out and seek sponsorship and opportunities for people to come along. So we've set up a charity so that we can raise money for this and access all kinds of you know government grants and private foundations. And it's also broadened out a little bit further. So it's not just veterans, the charity focus on veterans, first responders, carers, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups. Right. And it's a really good mix of people who might have had a pretty hard time and something that frees their brain to think about the world in a different way could be very useful. Yeah. And what we found is, you know, our thinking's changed a lot on this. We found that people often talk about PTSD. Oh, it's PTSD, PTSD. And it gets a bad rap. I mean, we're talking more broader about workplace stress. Yeah. Different people have 
different stresses in the workplace. Now, military is an obvious one. First responders is also, you know, right now a really topical one, fireys and ambos and doctors and nurses. And what we found is that if you don't have a way of replenishing yourself or of dealing with this stress, there's a cumulative toll that gets taken on people where they have this constant exposure to stressful situations or traumatic incidents and it wears you down and it changes you into something less than who you were before. So where we fit in is that we're an opportunity to lose yourself in making something. Yeah, because making something is just the biggest endorphin rush. Yeah. If you can get people lost in something to not think about the stresses from a year ago or yesterday, instead to just be in the buzz of making, yeah. what a powerful way. Again, it's like trying to teach meditation where it can take years to get the point across, but instead because something's being made, the brain goes, hang on, this was awesome. Now let's repeat making stuff. It's a fast way into a different mindset. It is. And it, it teaches you a few things. There's, there's a thing about perseverance, um, about resilience, about bouncing back from mistakes. So when you, you make a mistake with the grind or with the cutting or something, you have to stop and think about how am I going to get through this and you can get through with it and make, still make the item. But it may be, you know, we have this running joke. We don't make mistakes. We just make smaller knives. Yeah. But you just you make it a different knife. Yeah. That's it. How, how am I going to hide this scratch? I know I'll engrave around it or something. Yeah. Or I will decide that, yeah, it could be part of a pattern. See, it's, it's interesting. Like I haven't found something to make being blind that I really enjoy. So my big thing is yoga. And yeah. that taught me I'm my own product, yeah. but also I can't look for perfect because I'm doing a form of yoga where every time I get better at something, they give me another posture that can, you know, discombobulates my brain for another year. Yeah. As I try and work out how to get my body into that shape. But you start eventually going, the process alone is so transformative. As long as you're still learning and you're still gaining in experience, it was an awesome day. So to be able to have that and then show that you made something, just such a wonderful combination of the physical and the mental for people. Yeah, look, that, that's exactly right. And I think what we found is that people go away refreshed after the weekend or the week or whatever they've done. They go away with an enthusiasm to whether it's knife making or blacksmithing or whatever it is, or it could be something completely different. There's an enthusiasm to get back into this. They've realized that, wow, I don't, didn't realize how much I was missing from creating something. So I'm going to yeah. look at an opportunity to build that into my life. I might do some sculpture stuff. I might do welding. I might, go back to restoring cars that I used to do as a kid. Yeah, there's something that's gone that changes. And so people have a hobby that's healthy yeah. that they can replenish themselves. So if you have a very stressful job or, or life, you know, you're still topping yourself up. You're still being able to do it. And it can be, you know, a preventative rather than it's not necessarily a cure thing. Stop the stress getting too high by always taking the edge off it. Yeah. That's it. And so we're, we're really pushing hard with these programs. Um, we got some amazing funding uh, last year to fund three years worth of first responder programs, 60 first responders a year. Um, Fantastic. To try, and, to try and show that there's a different way of reducing the burnout. Yeah. To try and, and, you know, that's a lot more cost effective that can work in situations where it doesn't. You know, getting fireys and ambos and those kind of guys in uh, and girls into to try these things and say, before you bust yourself, let's divert some of that energy into something that'll 
that'll help you back. Yeah, let's build you a pressure valve or when the pressure is getting a bit high, you know it's time to go out in the workshop. That's exactly right. Yeah, you know, we, we're losing that. You know, people, all these new apartments, they don't have... Nowhere you can work. Uh, ...sheds anymore out the back. There's no backyards or those things. They have, there's a big men's shed movement, but often you go there and there's a whole bunch of rules you have to follow and it's only open on some days and, you know, it's not as I need to go now, when can I go? You know, I'll duck out to the shed and come back in five hours later forgetting what time it was. That's that's the idea that we're trying to go for. Well, psychologists talking about flow and I think knife makers, in my experience, have more flow than most people who hunt it. Because once they start on a project, there's always that next step and there's the, the bits in the middle while they you know, prep the next step or do the next thing to have the next idea and work out how to just get that subtle difference from the last thing they made to the thing they're working on that they want to improve slightly. And they can just yeah. lose whole days without realizing it. Yeah, that's right. One of the interesting things I notice about knife makers is that they're very solitary creatures. Yeah. They hide in their shed by themselves, which is fine. But they can, you know, when I first started, if I, if I wasn't lucky enough to have Thomas showing me things, it's, it was almost impossible to get in unless someone, you knew someone, Yeah. They, nobody wanted to share anything. Nobody wanted to get ideas. They were too, they're very isolated. They'd been in the sheds for so long. They couldn't conceive of someone else being in the shed. That's right. Mm. And, you know, they might be a great knife maker, but often aren't a really good teacher. What, what's interesting here that I've noticed with our setup is that we have a group of people who make knives during the day and who often go home at night and make knives or on the weekend. And when they bring things in on, you know, after a few days off, they bring in, Oh, look what I did. And I put it on the table and you watch everybody else's eyes. They snap around, have a quick look, they grab it and they try this. And then, you know, it's the next week, something else would come that inched it a little bit further. And I've watched guys here in three or four years progress far more than I did in 20 you know, yeah, that's the advantage of a hot house. If you can have exposure to other people who, when you're having a down day, just give you that idea that gets you back in the game and enthusiastic again, and with an idea of how to get that breakthrough you need or want. You yeah. know, hot houses are fantastic in any discipline. And, it, and it's something very rare in what we do. Um, we had, before the, again, before the shutdown, we used to have a monthly catch-up where anybody, any local maker could turn up here on you know once a month and people would bring projects in and sit and talk and get ideas and get that exposure. So they weren't isolated in their shed. Mm. They, they, you know, they weren't stuck with writer's block or yep. um, whatever it is. And they, they could get things going. And I think that's really, people are finding that really hard that they're missing that at the moment because it's not available. Once um, you've got over being solitary, it's very hard to go back. Even though you still have to do the work, knowing that you're going to get, that sort of inspiration and positive affirmation that someone's excited about what you're working on, even if you're stuck is such a good thing. Oh, that's it. Assuming that COVID eases off, it sounds like things are going gangbusters and you're really just trying to teach as much as you can and eventually find some time to make some stuff under the Thawa Valley Forge brand and just keep doing what you're doing is the plan for now. Cause it sounds like it's grown so much. Yeah, I think so. It's almost at a survivable level where it's paying for itself almost. So it's, you know, we've got a little bit more to do. You know, people talk about the new normal and stuff that's different after COVID. I think one thing that's very apparent is this desire to be creative. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just all sourdough in your house anymore. It's people have realised that there's 
there's got to be something more to life than what we had before. Yeah, making is a great way into this thing of wanting to leave a mark and do something that's yours, but also yeah. lasts longer. Yeah. You know, making an heirloom. How often do we make something that our grandchildren will have? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's, that's not necessarily going to go away. I don't think post COVID we're going to see a world where that's not important. So, you know, our challenge is how do we become more accessible to people? And it's really a limit. We're limited by space now at the moment. At teachers as well, but we can, if we have the space, we can fill them with teachers. Mm. So, you know, leather work for us has been something we struggled with for years and we seem to have cracked it this year. And there's a whole bunch of leather work courses coming off. And we find that that's something very easy to do at home without a lot of expense in equipment. Yeah, I and- love the way that got written up on your website. Like, you know, you'll need one trip to Bunnings after the course to get what you need to keep yeah. making if that's what you want to do. And that that's fantastic when people go, hang on, even if I love this, I can keep going the week later. I don't need to go back to the fully equipped workshop. And we, we don't we don't want people to be coming and doing courses all the time here. We want people to set stuff up. We try and give them you know, as much information, share whatever we know. We're very happy to let, we want you to go out and make whatever it is. Mm. So yeah, those, those things are very important to us. I suppose looking forward, you know, the next big thing is to, we're looking at building a, a, expanding a new shed for woodwork, which would be something that's really missing in our lineup. We don't really do a lot of furniture or carving or any of those kind of things. And I think Mm. that's another area of great interest for people. Um, Start making the tools for the other workshop. Oh yeah, (laughs) (laughs) we do. We have, you know, you can. We've run a few ones where you make carving tools that you can use for wood carving later. That's that's a really, you know, that's a meta way of doing it. Where you, when you start making your own tools, you know, you're getting serious. Yeah. The other one we're looking at too is uh, we've got a commercial kitchen there, looking at cooking and paddock to plate type stuff. There's gardens, and we have our own sheep there and things like that and to have classes where you could come and learn how to go out and forage and get things and make stuff and all of that would be really interesting you know it's got to be more than just consuming it's got to be more than for us it's more than that it's that process of interacting that creative streak that influencing your environment living better is what's important so how we do that well, there's so many different options. Just keep evolving with what, you know, is available, what opportunities are provided and keep pushing the limits. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Or taking but, it back to, to primal kind of necessity as well, I guess, in some sense. So. The foundations yeah. of life. Yeah. Making things that are useful. And if you can make them useful and beautiful, that's just even more rewarding. Which is why we wanted to talk to you. It's and it's highlighted, I guess, exactly for me. I'm mean, I'm not someone. I've always had an interest in knives. I've got a massive scar on my one of my index fingers from whistling a stick and putting a knife straight through my finger. But um, what this conversation has highlighted to me is just how much bigger knife making is than just, I guess, even just an art form. It means a lot more than that. So, thank you for highlighting that. <laughs> Look, there's there's very few of us. There's maybe two hundred hobby knife makers in the country, maybe 300. I don't know. Hard Mm. to tell. But when you think how many knives we use on a day-to-day basis, if everybody has, say, say you've got 10 knives in your house now, David, you might have a couple more than that. Yeah, I'm kind of the freak in the the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if there's 10, on average, 10 in each house and there's 10 million houses in Australia, that's 100 million knives. And my guesstimate out of all the custom work done in the country there wouldn't be 3,000 made a year. Mm. 3,000 out of 100 million. Um, so, 
you know, there's no problem with competition. There's no problem with any of those things. There is a lot of knives to make. Um, Even if we thought about it like the Adelaide show, let's assume there's maybe say 40 tables with 10 knives per table. That's mm. maybe four or 500 knives at the whole show. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had never thought of it that way because I'm normally going, what's my budget for the day? Yeah. How much can I afford to get two this year? Well, that's right. And that, you know, the Adelaide show may sell, you know, 200 knives. Yeah. Not all of the knives sell. So people go home with them. Yeah. I know I've been looking at the same knife that keeps being, if I had just a bit more money, it's been my next amount of money knife for three years. I think yeah. I've made the poor dude so sad. It's um, actually one of the funny things about knife makers are when you go to a show, if they sell none, um, they're big grumbly because they had to pay to come there. But if they sell all of them, they're very grumbly because they have to go home and make some more. There's a sweet spot in the middle where you sell enough to keep your costs and to buy a nice dinner out, but you've still got some left for next time. <laughs> I will so think of work. that when next I have to leave that knife for the fourth time. Yeah, they, they, feel, they don't feel so upset. But you put so much of yourself into it. You know, when yeah. they go, you're like, I didn't really have that long enough. It's gone. <laughs> yeah. I, I've definitely felt that with some of the things I've bought, you know, from different makers where once they've met me one year, they start going, well, what can I do for texture that David would find interesting? I know yeah. I'll do some firework on this or I'll, you know, I'll etch this differently or I'll try and get the wood grain to actually have a feel rather than just be super shiny. And they're so excited. David, David, you've got to feel this. Like, yeah, you, um, it's really cool. Next time you talk to Sean, McIntyre, he does mm. a, a really nice rusticated yes. learned from a pipe maker. Yes. He had it on about a five-inch bladed 1095 drop point last time he was in Adelaide. And unfortunately, that was one of the years where Alistair had made a folder thinking of me and my entire knife budget was gone in the first 30 seconds of the show. Well, I think people like when you appreciate their work. You know, it, it's quite exciting when you make something with someone in mind. Yeah. Well, the, the, this sort of a big Bowie that um, Brian Simon made me, you know, I gave him some basic you know, criteria and said, look, you know, if COVID's not too terrible, we'll still have a knife show in November. Don't work on it until you feel like it, but as long as I've got it by the show, but you're welcome to take it to the show. You know, if it will be useful to have it on your table so people can see what you can do. Well, he made it like within three weeks. Yeah. Right. Cause he was so excited by the project. And it became so disruptive to everything else he was doing. He just figured he better finish it. <laughs> that's what we need customers to push us in the right directions. Yeah. See, that's, see, this is another interesting thing. And, and we'll let you go soon. Cause we know you're a very busy man, but when I try and give a sense of what I'd like someone to make for me, I try and be very general. Like I might go like, okay, you know, blade style, roughly this flat grinder hollow, this kind of length, you know, this style of guard, maybe this kind of handle material, but all of those things are up to be altered. If you get really excited, do you like very specific guidelines or just a general sense of what someone's after? What's better to work with? Well, you want an idea of what the intent is. What is it a gift? Is it something yeah. to use? Is it to collect the, the hardest ones are the ones where people have watched way too much YouTube or forged in fire and decided they're experts or they oh. read too many Wikipedia articles and they, Try and tell you how to do your job. Like I don't, yeah. I don't go to the hospital and tell the surgeon. <laughs> yeah, precisely. I say this is hurts. Can you fix it? 
<laughs> yeah, whereas I, I try and remember that I'm just a very enthusiastic amateur. And talking to you guys really made me realize the reason I keep collecting is because I can't make. Mm. If I could make, I wouldn't collect. It would it, The switch would flick the other way immediately. Because uh, sometimes, sometimes when you... When you make, you can't afford to collect because you spend all your time making. Yeah. Um, but well, I think I've done enough collecting, so no going the other way would be good. <laughs> it's good having a choice. Look, like, you know, the best commissions I get are where people say, um, surprise me. You know, this is the intent. Yeah. Do something you're really proud of. Do something that you, yeah. you go that extra effort rather than you, you've quoted a price and thinking, how do I make it? to fit in that price bracket, which is always hard. Yeah. Um, or just just a little bit more than what they expect, but not too much more. But if someone says, look, do something that you've always wanted to, don't hold back. Yeah. They're interesting commissions. Yeah. Again, in when we're not in COVID times and there's more cash for the knife show, I might start doing that that general. I've always tried to be a bit more specific because there's things I like, which is oh, yeah. I guess part of the problem. Give them a budget, give them the intent of what yeah. you want and the kinds of things. And off we go. Do something really funky because these people are creative. Yeah. They thrive on challenges rather than, you know, making the same things every day. That's not who they are. Yeah. Again, to go back to Alistair's, you know, frame locks having number 313 and 34, that's, I think, only a year between number three and 34. And yeah, the, the, the transition in that period was just crazy. Yeah, he's an incredibly talented man. You know, there are so he makes this stuff, titanium Damascus, where you yeah. get different layers of titanium and you weld them together and forge weld them together. And when you color them, they come in these iridescent colors and patterns. Yeah, there are six people in the on the planet that can do this. Six, and there's a company in America around one of the persons who's patented this method. They rang him up to check that he hadn't copied their method. And he hadn't. He'd worked out another. Worked out his own method. Wow. So, but there's six. You know, he, he is literally one in a billion. Yeah. That, that's uh, it. More people have stood on the moon than yeah. know how to do this thing. Well, wow. like, you know, listeners, I'm holding my wrist up now so Karim can see on the camera. But I'm actually wearing two bracelets that Alistair made. The yeah. thin one was the initial silver one he started making for all of us, where we couldn't carry our knives around that Alistair had made. So he started making the bracelet so we could at least identify each other. Ah. And then he made the thicker one, but his thicker one's got all sorts of amazing gems stuck in it. And I'm like, were you making thicker ones? He goes, yeah, but not with any of the gems. I like, well, can't afford that. So it was initially, it was like, well, do I wear the thick one or the thin one? And I just decided, come on, I'm a knife head. I might as well just wear both and you know, indicate I am part of the Alistair Bastian tribe. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a strange tribe to get recognised in, I think. <laughs> well, it was really funny at last year's Adelaide Knife Show, there were four of us standing around a table and then someone said, hey, we're all wearing an Alistair bracelet. Wow. Cool. <laughs> so it was kind of the cool, happy Camelot round the round tie, you know, mm. kind of thing. We're, we're seriously off topic. Karim, thank you ever so much for your time today and for describing what you do and the amazing things you're doing, providing a place where people can learn so they don't have to be in their shed on their own. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure talking, but if any of the readers want to come and visit, just give us a yell and, and come down. We, we want this to be, you know, a mecca for making. We want people to, you know, want to travel from all over because this is a place they can get excited again. And if um, you're unlucky, you might end up there the same weekend as I'm drooling over everything. <laughs>
you'll be fine. I'll bring you a bib. Thank you. And uh, you'll find all of Karim's details in the description, listeners, so you can come and research that yourself. But for now, thank you very much for that chat, Karim. It's been fantastic. Easy. And, and thank you, David. Thank you, everybody. Catch you next time, audience. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. OzCast.